2: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself.
2: Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 212. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Oh, Bui Tibinafi and Bienvenidos Bitches. I almost forgot. Uh, <laughs> Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color, those who are othered, and the victims. Because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, able bodied, white dudes. No! <laughs> These <laughs> crimes rarely get any public attention because the news is. Oh, boy. What is it? I, I was thinking of something cool to say, but racism isn't cool. The news is racist, <laughs> allegedly.
1: <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. She is an ally and co-conspirator. Deal <laughs> <get> with us. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Matthew Stephen Johnson, an American serial killer and rapist who murdered three women in Hartford, Connecticut between 2000 and 2001. He is also the leading suspect in the murders of two other women. And his signature was stomping the women to death. With a Timberland boot um yeah. so before we get into it how are you doing i'm exhausted so yeah. we're recording the day after halloween i was uh-huh. up kind of late last night i took yeah. my grandson out trick-or-treating it oh. was really fun but yeah. uh i stayed up later than i usually do so yeah i'm wiped out
2: ah i see well i totally get it i am feeling the same however i'm doing good by the way my gift costume was a hit. Oh, yay! <laughs> I mean, I went, we went to two, like, Halloween events, and everyone was like, oh, my God, what are you?
1: <laughs> That's awesome. My daughter, um, she dressed her dog up as a spider, and she oh. was everybody's favorite. Oh,
2: that is so cute! I love doggy costumes. That's the yeah, best. Yeah, me too. Funny all year round, really. Yeah. Who needs Halloween to dress up a dog? <laughs> Not me. But uh, yeah, doing good. And I totally get being exhausted. It, it was a late, a later yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. And you know
1: what really sucks is that I ran out of magic mind. Yes. Oh, Ugh, magic mind. I need to mind. order more. Yeah. Talk
2: about it. Yeah. Samezies. I think we have a few little bottles left, but it's the only thing that like got me through today day specific. Today was a tough day. (laughs) I mean, I I was juggling so much. I mean, the late night, Plus, I had to wake up early and, like, work is crazy and have the podcast and so I'm balancing all this stuff and we only have 24 hours in the day. What? <laughs> um, yeah, would you believe it? <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I don't have to use as much caffeine as I um, used to ingest. or When you're using I,
1: Magic Mind, yeah.
2: Exactly. And I don't have to use sleep aids. Bye-bye, sleep aid. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> I've, I found this, this little cute little green shot that has really helped me so much with like mental focus and alertness and productivity. Those are the things you're missing right now, right, Beth?
1: Yes, definitely. Yeah, because <laughs> I ran out and I really need to order more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on it right now while we're talking. I'm know, ordering some Magic same. Mind. <laughs> yeah, no, the good
2: thing is we have a really, a really good code that you can check out in the description box. But usually I drink some like I go back and forth between green tea and, and coffee. So I'll have my green tea or coffee and then magic mic and it, or magic, <laughs> magic, magic <Mike>. mind. <laughs> and, I have a little magic mic. Ooh, I have a little magic mind. Can't look away. <laughs> I can't get enough of the magic mic. No, uh, magic mind. And it feels like a coffee
1: booster, like a caffeine booster. Yeah. It, makes, it extends the life of that first bite. Oh, all day made. long. Yeah. yeah. It, but it doesn't keep you up at night. So, oh, no, no. Yeah. I don't know what they put in there, but it is magic.
2: Oh, well, well, would you like to know?
1: Yeah. It's got some wonderful
2: ingredients. It's got matcha, which is like nature's caffeine, ashwagandha, which helps with stress and anxiety. Oh, love ashwagandha. I know me too. Love, love, love it. Um, lion's mane. Uh, that's a mushroom. It's a mushroom, yeah. And it's a no tropic and adaptogen and rhodiola, which I love to say, and it's got good <laughs> stuff in it. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. So you, Beth, order your magic mine. I'm gonna I'm gonna hop on the internet and order Myself, some as well. You can check out the link for Magic Mind in our description box. So, uh, what you can do is you can go to the website and get 56% off your first subscription or 20% off your one time purchase with our code
1: Fruit Loops20. Yeah, you should do it because they have a 100% money back guarantee. So, there's no risk.
2: Not at all. I mean, how many times can you say that you buy something and it sucks and you want (laughs) your money back and they won't give it to you? But Magic Mind is
1: different. Yeah. And also, it doesn't suck. <laughs> it doesn't
2: suck
1: at all.
2: It's actually amazing. We, we for reals use it, swear by it. I've shared it with my partner, Beth. We shared it with Minnie at CrimeCon. Like, yep. This stuff is legit. So again, our code is Fruit Loops20. And uh, get on it. Get on it. All right. Now we're going to get into some listener letters.
1: Hang on a minute. Well, hello, angels. Oh, thank you.
2: You know what I've just... I, I have this thought every time I play this sound drop and I'm like, it makes me literally my, I feel my blood pressure lowering. I need to have it with me at all times. Yeah. Just anytime you start feeling
1: stressed out. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Uh, What's in that bag, Beth? I don't have anything in the bag today, but I wanted to say, please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 6029356294 <laughs> and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, join us on Patreon where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content and we have a video club for 12 plus patrons where you can interact with us in person and this month in November we're going to have it I think on the 26th. It's a, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Got it. So our bellies will be
2: full and our minds will be full of documentary stuff. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) All righty. Well, um, it's been a while since we've done this. Every now and again, we have to remind the people that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color. And true crime is difficult to talk and hear about. And so can sometimes race and other, you know, systems of oppression. They can be difficult to discuss as well. But it's just part of the world that we live in. And we live in this world. We want it to be great. And we should be able to talk about the way things are and how we can make them better. And this is a safe space where we can have discussions that are sometimes difficult about all of the things. We are all learning all the time. Sometimes we make mistakes when we're having these conversations, but we cop to it, we learn from it, and we keep it moving on our collective quest to be our (laughs) best sexy selves. Amen.
1: (laughs) And we welcome all our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com. That's right. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when
2: we come back.
0: A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.
1: And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject? Our subject today is Matthew Stephen Johnson, a Hartford, Connecticut serial killer who stomped women to death. He was convicted of three murders and is still the leading suspect in two others. All right, let's get into it. We want to say love and
2: light to the victims, their families and their loved ones left in the wake of this brutal, brutal set of crimes. Yeah. And the community as well. So Rest Empowered Queens to Aida Quiñones, who was 33, Rosalie Jimenez, who was 32, Alicia Ford, who was 37, Ladon Roberts was 28, and Rosalind Casey was 32.
1: Rest in power, Queens. Yeah. So now let's get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Hartford, Connecticut. Hartford is the state's capital and one of the oldest towns in the state. Prior to European invasion, several groups of Native peoples lived in the Connecticut area, including the Nipmuc, Mohegan, Peacot, and the Niantic. So all of them spoke related languages and shared many cultural similarities, each tribe had its own leadership and its own territory.
2: Connecticut's name is derived from the Mohican word Quonetakut, which translates to Long Tidal River,
1: and that's reference to the Connecticut River.
2: It is the longest river in New
1: England at 407 miles long. The colony of Connecticut was founded in the early 1630s, And in 1636, a large group of Puritans came from Massachusetts and settled in Hartford. Hartford was originally agrarian with fertile fields and abundant crops, but its place on the river quickly established the city as a center for commerce.
2: It became a banking and insurance center and is sometimes called the insurance capital of the world. Hartford grew to be one of the most prosperous cities in the nation, and by the late 19th century, was the wealthiest city in the country. Wow. Yeah. Connecticut? Oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody's sleeping on Connecticut. I had no idea.
1: <laughs> the role of the insurance industry was crucial to the viability of slavery. Yeah. Connecticut businesses insured slaves as property. hmm So mm-hmm. not life insurance. All property of the ones that we know yeah. of did it. Yeah. Yeah. Aetna Life Insurance Company, or ALIC, was incorporated in Connecticut in 1853.
2: Yeah, and there's a whole list of other ones. Wells Fargo. um, Wells Fargo is a bank, but they gave out loans for people to buy property, including enslaved human beings. So that's a horrific history if you want to look into it further. Check the link. In March 2000, Aetna, the nation's largest health insurer, apologized for participating in slave insurance 150 years ago and expressed its regret over participating in this deplorable practice. At least one other Hartford insurer, Hartford Life Insurance Company, which is not related to the present company, was a similar name, sold slave policies, but they eventually went
1: bankrupt. Many people think of American slavery as a Southern problem, but there was in fact enslaved people in Connecticut until it was abolished in 1848. Slavery in Connecticut dates as far back as the mid-1600s, Large farms or plantations in southeastern Connecticut were worked by enslaved people.
2: Eastern Connecticut's textile mills also depend on the millions of pounds
1: of slave
2: grown cotton imported from the southern states. The Connecticut Courant newspaper profited by publishing runaway slave ads. Wow.
1: Yeah. Connecticut's growing agricultural industry fostered slavery's expansion. And by the time of the American Revolution, Connecticut had the largest number of enslaved people in New England. At one point, more than 5,000 Black people were enslaved in Connecticut. One in four Connecticut estates enslaved at least one Black person by the start of the Revolutionary War.
2: Wow. Holy moly. After the war, new ideas about freedom and the rights of men brought about the movement to end slavery in the United States. But by contrast to neighboring states, Emancipation in Connecticut came
1: slowly. Connecticut passed the Gradual Abolition Act of 1784, but this act did not emancipate any enslaved persons, only those who would be born into slavery and only after they reached the age of 25. This gradual process meant that slavery in Connecticut did not officially end until 1848, Mm. long after many other northern states had abolished the practice. Wow. You may have heard of the Amistad case.
2: I love this case. I've never seen the movie, though. But I I love the story. Oh, my God. So in February of 1839, Portuguese slave hunters abducted a large group of African people, members of the Mende people, from Sierra Leone and then shipped them to Havana, Cuba, a center for slave trade.
1: Two Spanish plantation owners, Pedro Montes and José Ruiz, purchased 53 Africans and put them aboard the Cuban schooner Amistad to ship them to a Caribbean plantation. On July 1st, 1839, the Mende seized the ship, killed the captain and the cook, and ordered Montes and Ruiz to sail to Africa. I love it. But Montes and Ruiz actually steered, they, yeah, they tricked them. They yeah. actually steered the ship north
2: and the Amistad was seized off Long Island, New York. The Schooner, its cargo, and all on board were taken to New London, Connecticut. The plantation owners were freed, and the Mende were imprisoned on charges of murder.
1: The Mende were eventually tried in Hartford. There, a judge ruled in favor of dropping murder and conspiracy charges against the enslaved Mende, but because of competing property claims, the case then went on to federal district court. I really got to watch this movie.
2: So a a district court judge (laughs) then ruled that as former free men living in Africa, the Spanish had no right to enslave the Mende people. He ordered the captives released and returned to Africa. This case then went all the way to the Supreme Court, where in March of 1841, the decision was ruled in favor of the Mende. Later that year, the 35 remaining Mende 18 of them had died at different stages on their voyage or while in prison, sailed back home to Sierra Leone.
1: So it has a good ending, but 18 people died. Yeah. And, you know, they went through this traumatic experience. So Yeah, for a long time. 1839
2: is when they were kidnapped and they didn't get home until
1: 1841. 1841. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In the early 1850s, brothers-in-law John Hooker and Francis Gillette purchased 140 wooded acres just west of Hartford's last trolley stop on a band, or nook, of the Winding Park River. The men built their homes and parceled out land to family members and friends.
2: A literary colony developed called Nook Farm. Oh, I love this one. <laughs> I, 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 there's so many, I, I just have to say, there are so many Black history gems and Indigenous gems historical gems in this state. And I I feel so ignorant. I had no idea. Yeah. So this was a treat to like read about. Yeah. Yeah, to read about. So a literary colony developed called Nook Farm. It was a tightly knit community of intellectuals, political leaders and reformers. The homes were accessible to each other on pathways winding through the broad estate and the residents often dined together and enjoyed fireside discussions
1: or other entertainments. That sounds lit. It sounds (laughs) sounds awesome, yeah. Yeah. In 1864, Harriet Beecher Stowe moved her large family to Hartford and built a home at Nook Farm. She is the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, an anti-slavery novel which became the best-selling book of the 19th century and is credited with helping fuel the abolitionist cause in the 1850s.
2: Stowe was born in Connecticut and spent her teenage years in Hartford. John Hooker's wife was Harriet's half-sister, Isabella. A passionate feminist, Isabella Beecher Hooker worked much of her life to secure women the right to vote a
1: view that many of her day considered outrageous. Outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> if you consider that women didn't get the right to vote until what, like 1920 or something.
2: <laughs> yeah. It, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. I You know, I wonder if there was a mental illness assigned to women wanting the right to vote. Oh, I'm sure
1: they were hysterical. Yeah,
2: yeah. And there was a <laughs> mental illness assigned to enslaved
1: people who escaped. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Which is just, It's not outrageous. It's just human beings. Yeah. Regular rights.
1: (laughs) So Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, moved to Hartford and Nook Farm in 1871. Uh He spent 20 years in Hartford where he and his wife raised their three daughters. Hmm. He wrote many of his best known books there. Wow. That's Tom Sawyer, right? Yeah. Tom Sawyer. Okay. And Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. Ah,
2: aha. Yeah. When we read those books in school, the teachers pulled me aside beforehand to say, the N-word is in this book. Are right. you okay with that? I was like, do I have a choice? Yeah. We did a lot of reading aloud, don't you know? Very awkward. Yeah, yeah so, very awkward. Uh, <laughs> the area where this colony once existed is within the Asylum Hill neighborhood, named after an asylum for deaf persons. What? Connecticut? I you serious? <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, beginning in the 1920s, major insurance companies began moving from downtown to Asylum Hill, bringing major change with office development. To make room for corporate headquarters, employee parking, and housing, blocks of single
1: family homes were gradually replaced by apartment buildings. Hartford's early black neighborhoods developed in three clusters in the city near the Connecticut River and places of work. They were also flood prone, poorly drained, swampy, or sloped areas near-municipal wastes, environmental nuisances, and cemeteries.
2: Hey, that's true today of a lot of Black neighborhoods around the world. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Many worked as shoemakers, boot blacks, laundresses, porters, waiters, laborers, cooks, janitors, and barbers. But there were many notable exceptions. Augustus Washington was a
1: successful daguerreotypist. What is that? Oh, it was a type of photography back then. Have you ever seen those sepia colored photos? Yeah, yeah those yeah. are daguerreotypes.
2: Whoa. Okay, thanks, smart friend. <laughs> also, renowned pianist and Kentucky native Raymond Lawson relocated to Hartford after graduating from Fisk University, which is an HBCU. Grant Williams was a correspondent from prominent Black publications such as the New York Age and the Philadelphia Tribune. I mean, I, when I was, I'm sorry, I got to say before oh, I have a list of so many notable black people from Connecticut over here in my notes for this uh-huh. case, there's just too many to, to list, but. Yeah. Oh yeah my. I
1: had, I, th- there's a lot more that oh. I could have included in this, Yeah, but yeah, not time. Oh, so my. I, yeah, exactly. check out yeah. the links guys. Check
2: it, check it yeah. out. I, I, I actually um, shouted out a bunch of TikTokers who talk about Connecticut Black history specifically oh, wow. and
1: put those in the show notes. Cool. Mm-hmm. So labor shortages during World War I quickened the pace of Black migration and movement into Hartford's Northeast neighborhood, also known as the North End. From a low of about 1700 in 1910, the city's Black population grew to about 4,600 in 1920, and by 1940 had reached just over 7,000.
2: The North End, which includes the Blue Hills neighborhood, became a predominantly Black community in the mid-20th century. Some of this had to do with the usual suspects, racially restrictive covenants, urban renewal, and the building of the interstate highway system, which collectively reshaped where Black people
1: could live in Hartford,
2: pushing them further into the North End.
1: Today, the city of Hartford's largest population group is Latinx at 45%, mostly of Puerto Rican heritage which really surprised me.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. um, That surprises me as well. And some of the TikTokers that I was watching were saying that their Caribbean ancestors, for some reason, decided to go all
1: the way up there to Connecticut. Yeah. Why? We don't Why? know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 33% of the Hartford population is Black and 16% is White. As a whole, Connecticut is just 10% Black. So Most of the Black folks are uh, centered in cities.
2: Yes, but it is so incredibly diverse. In fact, one of the Connecticut cities, a city in Connecticut, Bloomfield, I don't know how far it is from Hartford, but is 58% Black. And it's one of the top 10 cities where there's wealthy Black people.
1: Wow. Did not know that. Yeah.
2: Okay, Connecticut. (laughs) Un aplauso for Connecticut. (laughs)
0: or wherever fine podcasts are found.
2: Now we're going to get into the early life of Matthew Stephen Johnson. So Matthew Stephen Johnson was born on May 24th, 1963. A twin, he grew up in Hartford's Blue Hills and Asylum Hills neighborhood. Aside from his fraternal twin brother, Mark, he also had other siblings. Sources cited anywhere from 8 to 10 of them.
1: According to early records, Matthew was a quote-unquote sweet child who exhibited immature behavior, such as sucking his thumb. Matthew's kindergarten teacher told a psychologist that Matthew was a quote, behavior problem from the start, highly aggressive and unable to cope, unquote.
2: Yeah, and you know how I feel about teachers saying that about young Black boys. (laughs) Yeah, I feel so bad for him as a child. Me too, me too. So When he was eight years old, his guidance counselor said Matthew also had, quote, difficulty making social judgments, unquote. These kinds of statements followed Matthew, who was evaluated repeatedly at school and the Newington Children's Hospital after he became a ward of the state as a teenager.
1: Yeah, and I couldn't get any information about why he became a ward of the state. Yeah,
2: it's a mystery to me.
1: Or whether he was the only one in his family or if all of his siblings, we don't know. Yeah. So reportedly, Matthew suffered from an early brain injury. Throughout his early years, school psychologists and teachers reported that he lacked the ability to comprehend outside of a, quote, self-contained classroom, unquote. So, They
2: continue to label him as difficult. A problem, yeah. Mm -hmm. Officials described his academic abilities as limited, and they said the boy labeled as, quote, mentally R-word, unquote, with an IQ of 69. He also suffered from seizures, for which he took medications. Matthew also lost sight in one eye when he was shot with a pellet gun at the age of 12. Mm. Poor guy. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Once Matthew reached puberty, school records show that he was, quote, unable to anticipate and cope with failure, unquote. A psychologist recommended that Johnson undergo counseling with someone who was firm but empathetic on a day to day basis. And I wonder if he got that.
2: I'm, yeah, it's unclear from yeah.
1: what I could tell. It was recommended, but did he yeah. get it? I don't know.
2: Mm hmm. When he was 17, officials from the Newington Children's Hospital reported that Matthew had very little contact with his father, but that he visited his family, including 10 siblings, on the weekends in Hartford.
1: Matthew earned his high school equivalency diploma and worked as a laborer. He sought help at the Institute of Living, a mental health facility. Founded in 1822, it was one of the first mental health centers in the United States and the wow. first hospital of any kind in Connecticut. Wow. But he began rejecting his medication because he told doctors that it made him feel dizzy.
2: Matthew was also growing tired of being evaluated all the time. One evaluator noted, quote, Matthew exhibited an attitude of apparent disinterest as suggested by his frequent deep size and slumped posture, unquote. Whoa. But that sounds like just teenager stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He began abusing alcohol and drugs to cope. And described as a drifter, he often stayed in Hartford shelters. So now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. In
1: 1979, Johnson was arrested on charges of first degree burglary and assault. He was sentenced to six months in prison, but only served two. In 1980, Johnson robbed and assaulted a pregnant woman in a restroom at Hartford Civic Center. As a result of the attack, she miscarried.
2: In 1982, he nearly killed a night watchman during an attempted robbery inside the Cathedral of St. Joseph in the city's Asylum Hill neighborhood. The man ended up with a brain injury. Johnson was 19 at the time and lived in a home for troubled youths. The Youths. Utes. The youths. Uh, for that offense, Johnson was sentenced to 10 years in prison and he served four years. In
1: 1988, Johnson forcefully restrained a woman on the street. He threatened to kill her, punched her in the face and knocked her to the ground Whoa. before she was able to break free. Yeah, he was caught and sent to prison. But when he returned to Hartford in October of 1990, he continued to assault women.
2: But wait, there's more. He pulled a 40-year-old woman into the back of a building on Washington Street and told her, quote, don't make me kill you, unquote. He forced the woman to perform sexual acts before she was able to break free and he was caught.
1: In each of these cases, Johnson was caught because the women identified him, so he wasn't going to let that happen again. Ah. In 1997, he was released from prison after serving time for rape and violating his probation. He was placed on the state's sex offender registry.
2: On June 20th, 1999, the body of Ladon Roberts, who was 28 years old, was found beaten to death and left on the rear porch of an abandoned building. Her skull was crushed and she was cut on the neck and chest.
1: Ladon was born and raised in Hartford in a household with eight brothers and a sister, growing up with a large extended family of aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends. At the time of her death, Ladon was five months pregnant. Oh, God. Ladon was
2: last seen alive at approximately 11 p.m. on June 19, 1999. Police found her body about 7.30 a.m. the following morning. They were led to her body by a series of anonymous telephone calls. The caller was never found. The state medical examiner said the cause of death was a blow to the head.
1: On the afternoon of April 16, 2000, the body of Aida Quinones, 33, was discovered beneath a highway overpass at Capitol Avenue and Laurel Street in Hartford. Aida was originally from Puerto Rico, and she did not have family in Hartford. She struggled with a heroin addiction and was often desperate without a home and alone. Poor thing. Yeah.
2: So Aida's body was found lying face down and covered with dirt and gravel. The positioning of Aida's arms and the abrasions on her back and buttocks indicated that she had been dragged a short distance to the location where her body was found.
1: Her shirt and sweater had been pushed up to her chest and her pants had been pushed down and dangled from her left leg revealing the lower portion of her naked torso. Although Aida's right shoe had been removed and was found in the vicinity of her body, her left shoe remained on her left foot. The rest of her clothes
2: and the contents of her purse were scattered around the crime scene. Also found were several
1: Newport cigarette butts. The medical examiner determined that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and manual strangulation. The nature and severity of the injuries that had been inflicted to Aida's head Indicated that she may have been stomped to death.
2: In June of 2000, police responding to a tip discovered the body of Rosalind Casey, a 32 year old mother of five, underneath a railroad bridge in Hartford. Rosalind had been beaten and she died of trauma to the head, neck, and chest.
1: Rosalind had worked for the past three years at the Ebony Bottle Redemption Center in Hartford. She had fallen on hard times and had left her children to live with their father. But she wanted to go back to caring for them. Mm. She lived sometimes with her boyfriend and sometimes with her sister, Sheree. Gosh, can you imagine how difficult that must have been to, like, leave,
2: leave your kids? You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I, all of these women sound like they just had follow, had, had rough lives, rough, yeah. rough times. Yeah. Her mother said that Rosalind was last seen outside the Ashley Cafe in Hartford. Rosalind's friend Janice Johnson described her as, quote, a nice girl who liked to have fun. She was just a very good person
1: and went the wrong way, but she tried to turn around, unquote. On August 29, 2000, the body of Rosalie Jimenez, 32, was discovered in the basement of an abandoned building approximately a mile from the site where Aida's body was found. She was found by her boyfriend Orlando, who had been looking for her for nearly two days. Rosalie and Orlando were unhoused, as was Johnson,
2: and the three knew each other. The last time Orlando saw Rosalie was on August 27th. They were at a park and he had left to get cigarettes. When he came back, she was gone.
1: Like in the case involving Aida, Rosalie's shirt had been pulled up and her pants and underwear had been pulled down and dangled from her left leg, revealing the lower portion of her naked torso.
2: Rosalie's right sneaker had been removed and was found near her body. Her left sneaker remained on her foot. Rosalie's head was crushed and covered in blood, and a bloody shoe print was found on her right arm. Oh, jeez. Yeah, she had been stomped to death.
1: Mm. An autopsy established that the cause of her death was blunt force trauma to the head and neck. The injuries inflicted on Rosalie's head and neck were consistent with forceful contact with a wall or the ground and with the repeated stomping of a foot.
2: Mm. A dried blood-like substance was found under the fingernails of Rosalie's right hand. Later, DNA testing of this substance revealed that it matched both Rosalie and Johnson's genetic profiles.
1: It was much later that they did those DNA tests. Aw, man! (laughs) (laughs) About 11 months later, on July twenty second, 2001, the body of Alicia Ford, 37, was found next to the loading dock of an abandoned building about a mile from the location where Aida's body had been found, and a mile from the location where Rosalie's body had been found.
2: Alicia had moved to Hartford from New Britain to participate in a long-term alcohol treatment program. Her body was discovered by a cab driver at a loading dock of a vacant high-rise building near the corner,
1: with her head and face covered in blood. Like in the cases involving Aida and Rosalie, Alicia's shirt had been pushed up and her pants and underwear had been pulled down and dangled from her left leg, revealing the lower portion of her naked torso.
2: Unlike in the cases involving Aida and Rosalie, however, both of Alicia's sneakers remained on her feet. A boot print was visible on the outside of Alicia's t-shirt, and a Newport brand cigarette butt was again found at the scene.
1: Alicia had been stomped, and the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and neck. Injuries that Alicia had sustained to her throat also indicated that she had been manually strangled immediately prior to her death.
2: It was determined that a size 11 Timberland boot was most likely what left the boot print. Forensic testing conducted on a blood-like substance found on Alicia's chin revealed the existence of at least two genetic profiles, one of which was later matched to Johnson's. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. What the what, Beth?
1: In 2001, police set up a task force to solve the slayings of eight women in Hartford since 1994. In January of 2002, the case took a major turn when the DNA database turned up a match for evidence found on the cigarette butts and the victim's bodies.
2: Yeah! (laughs) The DNA comes through again. (laughs) So semen was found at three of the crime scenes, One state scientist compared the DNA found on the bodies with Johnson's DNA stored in the state's database of convicted sex offenders. They obtained a match, and Johnson was named as a suspect. Until the DNA was matched with crime scene evidence, the cases were classified as unsolvable.
1: Oh, geez. Hmm. On January 2nd, 2002, Johnson was picked up from a shelter and taken to Hartford Police Headquarters for questioning. As it turned out, Johnson smoked Newport brand cigarettes. Yes, but so do a A lot lot of black black people. people.
2: (laughs) I've never seen Newport. Like you see Newport ads in the hood. Like, yeah. And I remember Newport ads in black magazines that my parents used to subscribe to. But I've never seen a white person in a Newport ad or Newport posters in like wider neighborhood
1: establishments. Never noticed. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, he was shown a color photograph of Aida Quinones and asked whether he knew her. After studying the photograph for approximately one minute, he stated he did not. Johnson was then asked if he could explain the presence of his semen in Aida at the time of her death. And he could not do so, claiming that he had not had sexual intercourse with a woman since 1982.
1: Hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's the story you're sticking with, huh? Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it. He was then arrested and charged with the murders of Aida Quinones, Rosalie Jimenez, and Alicia Ford. There was not enough evidence to link Matthew Stephen Johnson with the murders of Ladon Robertson, Rosalind Casey.
2: Now, if you recall, Fruities, Matthew Johnson had a twin brother, Mark, right? Right. So twins can have almost identical DNA, but Matthew's twin, Mark, was a fraternal twin, not an identical one. He also lived in Florida. So police were able to rule out any link between Mark Johnson and the murders. Phew. <laughs> lucky. lucky yeah. Mark, we don't always get twin cases with yeah. DNA involved. So yeah, that was kind of <laughs> exciting from a true crime mm-hmm. fan perspective.
1: Yeah. But let's get into the trial, shall we? Hit it, Beth. State forensic investigators used blood spatters, cigarette butts and semen samples to tie Johnson's DNA to all three murders. The boot print from Alicia Ford's body was matched to a Timberland boot that Johnson owned. Nationally recognized criminalist Henry Lee analyzed the evidence and concluded that Johnson was the killer.
2: After Lee testified with respect to each individual murder, the assistant state's attorney asked him to consider the three cases together and to explain the importance of any shared similarities. Lee testified that there were several significant similarities which, in his opinion, linked the three murders.
1: First, each murder was committed in a publicly accessible yet very secluded location within a one-mile radius in Hartford. Second, each of the three victims was a marginalized woman in her 30s with a history of sex work and drug use. Third, each victim's clothing had been positioned in a similar fashion. Fourth of all...
2: The victims had been <laughs> killed in a similar manner. Each victim died of blunt force trauma to the head. Fifth of all, each crime scene could be categorized as organized and active because the killer individually selected his victim, lured her to an isolated location, and murdered her in a brutal manner. Sixth of all, the defendant's DNA was found on or in each victim.
1: Got him. Got him. <laughs> Lee also testified that if two or more separate murders appear to be related by the existence of certain similarities, including similar victims, along with the presence of a cooling off period between each murder, they are classified as serial killings.
2: Over defense counsel's objection, Lee opined that on the basis of his extensive experience and training, the Quinones, Jimenez, and Ford murders were consistent with the forensic definition of the term serial killings.
1: During the trial, Johnson's defense attorneys argued that the presence of Johnson's DNA on the bodies showed only that he had sex with the women. But the prosecutor argued that Johnson killed each of the women after he'd had sex and used cocaine with them. And then something triggered Johnson to become violent, and he didn't stop beating the women until they were dead.
2: In 2004, Johnson was found guilty of the three murders. The judge, who said he hadn't seen such brutality in nearly 20 years on the bench, sentenced Matthew Stephen Johnson at age 40 to three consecutive life sentences.
1: Throughout the three-week trial and at his sentencing, neither his mother nor his siblings appeared in court. Johnson remains the leading suspect in the deaths of Ladon Roberts and Rosalind Casey.
2: All right, so let's get into where are they now? I'll tell you. So Matthew Stephen Johnson is currently incarcerated at Cheshire Correctional Institution in Cheshire, Connecticut. He also most likely will die there. Yeah. And he has never admitted guilt. Yeah. So let's get into our takes.
1: What are your hot takes, Beth? Well, he had a brain injury and was basically rejected by his family and society. And like we talked about before, I don't know why he became a ward of the state, Mm -hmm. but that had to have been traumatic for him, especially if his siblings did not become wards. I mean, the rejection. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the circumstances were, but uh, that had to have been pretty traumatic. Yeah, I agree. In any case, what it boiled down to was this guy was so, so angry Mm -hmm. and he did not have the emotional or intellectual skills to deal with it. Right. You'd have to be just totally enraged to stomp someone to death. That's Mm -hmm. nuts. Yeah. It's so close and personal and Uh ugh. So I watched a TV show on this case, uh, Mark of a Serial Killer. Yeah. And several times they talked about how he just wanted to obliterate these women. Yeah. And I think that's a good word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He wanted to obliterate them.
2: Yeah. And, you know... I, I don't I don't know if there's something to this, but what was it about them? Like the East fact that they were women. women? Yeah, that they were women. Was it the fact that he could do it? Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure. I, maybe he was just angry. I, I mean, obviously, he was angry, but I agree. I with think they were was- vulnerable. Yeah, they
1: were easy. They easy were targets. easy targets. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So I got to say, I have was sleeping on Connecticut. And it is. <laughs> I mean, so there's so much there. I mean, it's way more diverse than I thought racially and economically. Even among BIPOC populations, there is class diversity, right? So there's a little bit of everything and a little bit of everybody. The kind of things that make like a society, you know, great. Yeah. It's diversity, right? So there is, I'd already talked about it's on the top 10 wealthiest black cities in America. Another thing this case made me think about was mandatory sentencing minimums. Which is newer. And his crime wave kind of started in the 80s in terms of right. robbery, assaults, and he would serve a chunk of very little and time to get yeah. out. Yeah. And in the past, judges would, you know, judge <laughs> based on, you know, the facts and context. And now judges don't get to do that anymore. And I feel like Matthew Stephen Johnson's case would have been a poster child for people who are like, we gotta be tough on crime. Yeah. You know, for sure.
1: Yeah. But
2: imagine if he had gotten the support and resources yeah. that he needed in when, the as a child. As yeah. a child, right? Yeah. I feel like the way he was just sort of moved around from right. place
1: to labeled place, labeled as a troublemaker. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: I mean, he hadn't, he couldn't, I don't, I don't think he stood a chance, to no, be honest with you. I don't think you. so either. And I don't know if, I mean, should we be surprised at what he turned into, yeah. given how society treated, treated him. him? yeah. And Johnson's murders were so violent and horrific and brutal. Not an excuse, but, you know, one of the things his case made me think of is the school-to-prison pipeline. And now we call it right. more of like a school-to-prison nexus because there's it's not just school to prison there's incarceration right. suspending kids from school then in, there's incarceration and poverty and residential segregation and violence all these things sort of contribute to kids ending up or, or the kids ending up in prison, prison. Yeah. but like i said i just wish he had had more
1: support support yeah.
2: the removal of the shoes thing is interesting yeah and
1: on all of them it was the left shoe the that left remained? shoe was removed and, and yeah. the pant leg. Yeah. My conclusion is he would just pull down, pull off one leg and it just happened to be the left. Let's see. Right. Left. Because that, I don't know, he was hit because of maybe he was uh right handed or. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like he just he pulled it off one leg.
2: But he only had one eye. And so part of me was oh, thinking. Oh, like, yeah.
1: Could have been. The, it uh, had to do with that. Yeah. Maybe his vision had something to do Could with yeah. his approach. Anyway. It was interesting, though. Yeah. When you read it, it sounds like a signature, but Kinda. I don't think it's a signature. I think it's more of uh, an ammo. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, I love it
2: when you get all
1: OG true crime. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: and then I thought about the Timbaland shoes. Yeah. Because he did the stopping like in the summertime. And how very Black? Because Timberlands are a staple in the Black community, particularly on the East Coast. Uh-huh. Um, so I think if people were like, who's doing this? I, I, If you had told, if the news article said, suspect uses Timberland boots, I mean, it would be immediately, it's Black, dude. it's Black, dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I love the DNA, for yeah. solving, solving, solving three the of the murders. Yeah. And, and I know that the, the other women's are, there's three of them who are still, not or two of them, yeah. two of them that are not linked to him, but anyway, I'm, I'm happy to see that DNA is doing good things in the world. Way doing to go, DNA! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, the victims I feel so bad for them. Yeah, uh, they were just women falling on hard times, and I mean, yeah. uh, by the grace of God, there go I, right? All it right. takes is one yeah. unfortunate thing happening, and I mean, how hard could it be to get back? And so, you know, I I've, this case made me think everyone is somebody's child and the women did not deserve what happened to them. Yeah. Neither did their loved ones. And it's it makes me so angry that he's like in prison alive. Right. And yeah. these women are not here today yeah. and they don't get to be with their families. And it just it's fucked. Yeah. So that's my thoughts. Now, should we get into how not to get murdered? Let's do it. Okay. (laughs) If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you.
1: (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. What you got, Wendy? Well, I
2: just came across this one on the old Instagrams. And uh, the account I got it from will be in the description box. It's like a mom account, a mom safety account. Okay. So these are tips on how to politely and assertively say no. Okay. First of all, no is a complete sentence, period, full stop. But you can also try this. Nah, I'm good. Or thanks for thinking of me, but I have to say no. Or you know what? I would just prefer not to. (laughs) Or no, thank you. Or thanks for the offer, but I have to decline. Or it's a no for me. Yeah, That's my favorite one. And uh, this one, can I give it a thank and get back to you? Or, oh, I'm so sorry. I already have plans. Or I'm so sorry. I'd love to, but I'm so busy. My favorite, my personal favorite is I'm sorry. I don't want to do that. Or <laughs> I'm
1: I'm so I sorry. I just don't
2: want to. <laughs> that
1: sounds like it sucks. No thanks. <laughs> so something I wanted to add to this is a lot of people will ask you, um, I don't know if they mean to or not, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's manipulative. oh. They will say, What are you doing on Saturday? Oh or, I hate that. what are you oh. doing for lunch? Yeah. I always counter with why. What's going on? You know, yeah. rather than answering because yeah. I don't want to say nothing yeah. and then have them trap me into doing something. Oh, so yes, I yeah. hate
2: that. I love that. Beth, thank you so much, Beth. And I Why? always try
1: to ask people. Like I make mistakes sometimes, but I try. Yeah. I try really hard not to manipulate people. Yeah, something that I learned in counseling. I don't want to manipulate people, so. I, instead of saying, what are you doing on such and such a date or whatever, I'll just explain what's going on and ask if they'd like to go or whatever, instead of it's so trapping much, them.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's easy. It's easy. Yeah, like it's it's, easier. it's very
1: easy. And yeah. I don't want to manipulate people because I know what it's like to be manipulated. It doesn't feel good. Nobody's happy. Nope. Not at all. Yeah. So it's better to just be upfront. Yeah. And 100%. Anyway, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So I thought those tips were great. Hopefully you do too. And if you think of some how not to get murdered tips, get at us. Yeah. loops, That's, that's us. Um, that's now us. It's, <laughs> <laughs> now it's shout out time where we shout out any content by or about people of color or any marginalized or minoritized folks. All right. Or any true crime goodies. This is a true crime goodie and it's okay. called Erased, The Murder of Elma Sands. And it is a hmm. podcast. Now, do you remember a little tune that goes, my client Larry Weeks is innocent. Call your first witness. That's yes. all you had to say. Okay, one more thing. <laughs> Why do you assume that you were smartest in the room? Um, okay, so that scene in Beth and I's favorite musical, Hamilton, was from the very first murder trial of our you know, newly formed United really? States of America under the new constitution wow. in 1800. And the defense attorney's, for Mr. Weeks were Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Fucking Burr, and it's about the murder of a 22 year old woman, Elma Sands, and you know she had this wealthy lover, Mr. Weeks, and he was accused of killing her, and her oh. her cousin Catherine is trying to preserve her cousin's good name. It's a scripted show, more modernized take on an older story, narrated by Allison Flom, and I I love it i mean, going to check that out. I was in when Allison Williams, she went on TV to talk about how it was introduced to her. And she said, oh, you know, in the, in the show Hamilton, when they go, your client Larry Weeks is innocent. Call your first witness. I was subscribed already. Hamilton.
1: So anyway, that's what I got. What do you got? Very cool. So I wanted to shout out Black True Crime Podcast. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. It's uh, Kayla and Kristen, who are both mm-hmm. Black. They discuss all kinds of true crimes committed by Black folks. And uh, yeah, I got into it. I listened to it to get some information about one of our subjects and Uh been into it ever since. So I just wanted to shout that out. Great. So
2: um, just to recap, that is Erased, The Murder of Elma Sands, as well as Black True Crime uh, podcast with Kayla and Kristen. Wherever you get your podcasts is where you can find these.
1: And speaking of finding, that's the end of the show, but where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is FruitloopsPod.com, and we use FruitloopsPod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show or become a Fruitloops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five star review. Five stars only, please. (laughs) And don't forget to subscribe. Yeah.
2: So this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy Crazy out out there. there. More who needs Halloween to dress up a dog? <laughs> Not me. outrageous, outrageous, yeah. <laughs> Connecticut, are you serious? <laughs> wow. Okay. Connecticut, 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 okay. Connecticut, <laughs> una aplauso for Connecticut. <laughs> the Ute them Utes, the Utes. What is that? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. That's the story you're sticking with, huh? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's fucked. Yeah. So that's my thoughts. Fourth of all, got him. Got him. <laughs> Phew. God, lucky lucky. Yeah. Beth and I's favorite musical, Hamilton. I really gotta watch this movie. My client Larry Weeks is innocent. Call your first witness. That's yes. all you had to say. Okay, <laughs> one more thing. Why do you assume that you were the smartest in the room? That oh, sounds lit. Sounds, it sounds <laughs> Awesome! Instagrams Cheshire, Ches,
0: Cheshire.
2: Cheshire, Cheshire, Cheshire. Yep, not Cheshire. Nope, Cheshire. Cheshire grin, Cheshire crap. <laughs> Cheshire. It's okay, Cheshire. It's Cheshire. Oh, okay, Cheshire. 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 Sixth of all, well, if you're good, I'm good. Yeah. Back to the grip. <clears throat> oh no. Uh, yeah. So anyway. What a day. Oh. So here, here we go.
1: Oh, man. All right. Yeah.
2: that's That's us. Um, that's us. It's- <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ta-ta. Night-night. Right. Bye. Bye.